In a world full of boring stories, bad videos, and marketing misinformation, one very tall man with a weird last name will use his microphone. This thing on? Use his video marketing knowledge. It's the red button, right? And use his friends. Please be on the show. To change that. You are listening to The Garlic Marketing Show with Ian. What? No, that's how you pronounce it. Well, if you say so, your host, Ian Garlic. The best marketers sell the story, and the best storyteller wins the customer. And the best stories are your customer stories. I'm going to give you the planner to create the perfect video case story for your business, just like we've done with all of our clients here at Authentic Web. Just go to iingarlic.com slash plan or click on the podcast image to get to the show notes and there'll be a link. There you can download the perfect video case study planner, the same one we use at Authentic Web to create incredible dynamic video case stories and video case story interviews. The Garlic Marketing Show, I'm Garlic, and I've got an incredible guest today for you all. He did something like build a podcast up to 4 million listens per month, but better than that, he's been kidnapped a couple times. Uh, (laughs) Wall Street attorney, uh, named one of the 50 best relationship builders in the world, and probably my favorite thing is he's the owner of Hashtag Shower Thoughts, which I've been going through and loving uh my well, i'm not i'm not the owner of that <laughs> i just love contributing to that yeah the, the internet owns that i i well i feel like you own it because it's the first time i've seen it and seen it done this well jordan harbinger thanks so much for being on the show thanks for having me on man i appreciate it yeah so uh yeah i i just want, i've got to give one of the valentine's day shower thought nice guys finish last is actually solid sex advice <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love that. I love that. But you, half the audience just dropped off. But <laughs> yeah. oh man, well we we got the good ones on now. Uh, uh, yeah, you should check them out. Check out his Twitter, uh, Jordan Harbinger. Pretty easy, and we'll put that in the show notes. Jordan, uh, thanks for being on the show. So you've got a new show come out, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a few minutes, and you sure. know, and your journey and how you're building it. But tell me about your background. It's been an interesting world. How did you maneuver into the podcasting world? Yeah, what was happening was I had started working for a law firm, and this law firm was like an old school sort of New York law firm is over 100 years old, and all the guys in there were kind of old boys network. And I was joining this, and I thought, cool. Um, Everyone here is really smart. Everyone here is a really hard worker. And I thought back to school about competitive advantages. And I was like, when I was real young, elementary school, maybe middle school, I could kind of coast by on natural smarts and figure stuff out on the test. I was no genius. I'm still not. But I was able to sort of kind of fake my way through it. You know, school wasn't that tricky uh, unless it was. And then in college, everybody was pretty smart. But the problem was everybody was drinking their face off. So I could just sort of show up and outwork (laughs) everyone. And the same thing with law school. But then when I got to Wall Street, it was like, oh, crap, everyone's smart and everyone's a hard worker. What's my competitive advantage? And there the the panic set in when I realized, crap, I don't have one anymore. Mm. And this guy who'd hired me at this law firm, his name was Dave. And I remember he 
brought in a lot of the business. And I remember asking him, how come you bring in business and a lot of these other partners, they don't bring in business because they're in the office working. You know, this is a guy from Brooklyn with a tan. He was never around. You know, he was always golfing or doing jujitsu or doing a, some sort of charity thing. And so I asked him, I was like, what's the secret to that? Because I just thought I'm going to get fired from this job. So <laughs> if I figure out how to, because I don't, you know, I can't outwork everyone like I usually could and not smarter than everybody like I was used to in the past, or at least I'm not even in the middle of the pack as far as smarts. I'm like, I'm at the bottom. Like I'm the screw up. Right. So I thought if I learn how to master this relationships and networking stuff that Dave was doing, that was his name, then I could bring in business and maybe I would be able to work outside the office more and people wouldn't notice I was like a total screw up or <laughs> clueless. So I did that and I started to build relationships and it started to be really useful. And then, of course, I started to work a lot on these skills on my own when I returned to Ann Arbor. Uh, but... Uh, which is where I was going to school. So I decided, okay, I'm going to keep working on this networking stuff. But the problem is none of my friends wanted to work on it. So I started going out by myself and I went, oh crap, this is really hard. How do I self-teach myself networking? I'm not walking in with 50 first year associates and running around some bar in Manhattan. I'm alone. Where does this process begin? And that's what I started to teach people as I learned it through law school. And that was the, that was the genesis of some of this curriculum. And then, uh, me and my friend, we kept, we found ourselves having the same conversation every, every night when we went out and we realized, Hey, if we could record this stuff, then it would sort of be, I guess you could say immortalized, but I think that's a little dramatic. If we could re record what we're learning and what we're talking about, we don't have to have the same conversation every night with the people that we teach. So we started burning them to CDs and that became untenable. And then we, we found out about podcasting and started uploading the shows. And here we, here we are, 11-plus years later. So, I mean, obviously podcasting changed your life. I mean, I have 4 million downloads yeah. a month. Where was the point where you realized, hey, the, I've got something big here? And where was the point you realized, I've got something huge here? Actually, funnily enough, I did the podcast for – probably somewhere in the neighborhood of let me think here six plus years and it was fun and it, i was you know we were working a business out of it and this is like 2000 and i guess 13 14 something like that it sort of depends on i'm doing the math in my head i'm not doing very well now you know why i didn't uh, stay now you know why i became a lawyer and then left so uh, I started to interview people and I started to get really serious about the show. Instead of just doing one whenever I felt like it, I started releasing one at the same time every week. Now there's three a week. And I, record, I recorded an interview with this guy named Robert Green. He's an author. He wrote 48 Laws of Power, really influential author. And at the end, he goes, why, why, is it, why did it take so long or why have we done more of these or something along those lines? And I thought, well, yeah, you know, I wanted to make sure I was prepared. And he goes, prepared. This is one of the best interviews I've ever done. And I thought, wow, if this guy has been in the media a bunch and I prepared a little bit more than I normally would. And I did this quality of show, this is really encouraging. So I started to take it really seriously. So it, more than half the life of the show was sort of spent dabbling. But even though I did it a lot, I, I guess I wasn't really treating it like a profession. And then the last five years or so have been really just sort of like heads down, figuring this out, getting better all the time. 
And when did I think I really had something? You know, up until recently, I never really thought about it. And then I realized, wow, this show has really grown. It's 4 million downloads a month, you know, in 2017. And I thought, this is really incredible. And of course, now here I am starting again from the bottom, which has been kind of both crushing and exciting at the same time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I can only imagine. But it's an opportunity, right? It's an opportunity. And we got to look at it that way. And I mean, you know, and, but you have one of those skills, the interview skill. And I want to ask you, because a lot of people don't realize how important it is, but what are your keys to an awesome interview? Because I think this is something that not only if you're podcasting is important, but throughout life. Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of people don't treat interviewing. Well, when they think about interviewing, they're like, oh, well, I don't have I don't have to be a radio talk show host. And they're right. They don't have to be a radio talk show host. And I don't think you should. But when I speak to executives a lot, what comes up is always the interview techniques. That's what the C-suite sort of upper management folks like to know. And I'm, that first surprised me, although it shouldn't, because I realized a lot of times when people are hiring or they're doing their interviews with one another, or even if they're just trying to work out partnerships, which is kind of an interview process, a lot of the questioning is superficial. A lot of people feel uneasy. And furthermore, a lot of folks actually are asking the wrong questions or they're asking the questions in the wrong way. And I always found this to be really fascinating because I very rarely do I hire somebody. And if I do, it's generally not going to be some sort of key position in a multi-million dollar organization or multi-billion dollar organization ever. So, <laughs> so uh, I'm just kind of thinking, okay, all right, this is, this is something that I should really apply. And when I find upper management slash C-suite, conversations lack what I find them lacking, I should say, is they really aren't getting into the root cause for people's behavior. And I think that's that's probably one of many things. But I'll tell you right now that when you're trying to hire somebody for an organization, or you have like a high stakes position. I would imagine that knowing. woo metaphorical sense, I mean, finding why people are motivated and how people's motivations work is going to be really important especially if you want them to be, be motivated by a company mission instead of just compensation so they don't leave for the next job that pays 10 grand more a year. You want to find people's motivation. You want to get them telling stories because I think by the time you're at a management level, you're pretty good at telling recruiters and even other people that you might work with what the hell you just, they want to hear, right? Mm-hmm. They're going to say something like, it's the old, it, the, the, the sort of entry-level cliche is, what would you say your weak point is? Oh, I'm too <laughs> detail-oriented and I work too hard. Right? Remember those days? And you're like, this is what I'm going to say if anybody asks me my weak point. At the upper levels, there's for sure some similar equivalent to that that's maybe less blatant, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm really, uh, I'm really blue ocean with this, you know? <laughs> like, whatever. I don't know what people say now. But getting people to tell stories about how they've handled something, that's going to show you how they're going to behave because the best indicator of future behavior is is past behavior. And mm-hmm. so getting people to tell stories, it's harder to just lie your way through that or have some sort of bumper sticker that gets you through it. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes complete tell sense. You how I managed a crisis in my business, it's going to be a lot more detail oriented and you're going to see a lot of the places about how I operated, how I felt, what I did, how I rallied in a time of struggle. than if I just say, yeah, last year we had a tough year, but everybody came together. Oh, congratulations. You're hired. I mean, there's, there's a story in there that's going to tell you more. 
Um, so, I mean, how do you get that story out of people? Because it's, I, I mean, some people aren't storytellers and I'm sure you, I saw you had like something like 920 episodes in the past podcast. You're going to probably have a thousand more and you get those people. You're like, please come on, meet me halfway. How do you get those yeah. stories out of people? Yeah, it, I've learned recently, especially to check. I mean, first of all, I check for other people's media, and this is more applicable in my world than it would be in the world of hiring. But I can tell you right now, the equivalent of me looking at someone's YouTube channel or looking for them giving a Google talk if I'm interviewing a neuroscientist, the equivalent for that. I would imagine many executives have spoken at a conference, and a lot of the time that's going to be filmed. Um, I also think that looking at people's social media, I know a lot of folks don't have that, especially, or it's all company branded at that level because you just don't want to get into trouble. If you're if you're working for Procter & Gamble and you're in the C-suite, you're probably not <laughs> tweeting out very much. Uh, there's not a lot of flippant stuff happening. But people can find examples of those people speaking, examples of their work, if there's anything public-facing is always very helpful. And I know that's industry dependent. There's going to be plenty of people who have nothing online other than their LinkedIn profile. But if you can find something that can showcase their personality, I would definitely look for that. And when I'm talking with people, I will be as blatant as to say, tell me a story about how this happened. Now, that might be trickier on the golf course if you're just hanging out with some JV partner and they're not in a job (laughs) interview situation. But the way that I would tease that out is if I was – if you and I were golfing and I wanted to see if you were a good fit for a business development role, I might say, so what kind of things have you been working on? And you'd say, ah, you know, a little of this, little of that. And I'd go, okay, so any specifics? That doesn't sound very detailed. Well, you know, I'm working on this project for uh, Procter & Gamble. I got another project for Bausch & Lomb. And I might say, oh, okay. So anything exciting uh, work-wise coming up or in the past? And if the person's like, no, you know, that can happen. But I think a lot of people might say, hmm, I haven't really thought about that. Or you can say, how did the deal go with Procter & Gamble? Or what are you working on for Procter & Gamble? Or if you can't tell me exactly what you're working on for them, tell me a little, give me an example of something that you do. Help me understand how your industry works. So if you ask people for that, they'll tell you a story about themselves generally. Because if I say, Oh, okay. Well, let's, let's assume that I know nothing about motorcycles and you do. I might say, tell me a little bit about why you're so into motorcycles. You're probably not going to go, well, hypothetically, individuals are interested in motorcycles because they feel <laughs> close to the road. You're going to say, I like this because I do this, I do that, I do this, and I do that, and I also do this. It's, it's just easier for you to speak from experience. So if I try to get you to tell me something about a topic because I can't say, tell me a story about riding a motorcycle, because that's weird. Um, I can tease it out of you by asking you to explain feelings or some, how something makes you feel in a way that doesn't say, how does that make you feel, Ian? Right? I can say, <laughs> why, do you, why are you so into this? Why are people so into this? You'll still tell me from personal experience, because it's the easiest way to talk. Yes, that's, that's, uh, that's great advice. And I bet you some people are doing it the wrong way. <laughs> um, so... Speaking of stories, I want to get to your kidnapping story because we have limited time and I I think I I want to know about it. How have you been kidnapped twice? Sure. So um, that would that would be so I'll do the short version of the story here. So the first version is I was 20 years old. I'm 37 now to put this in context. And I was in Mexico and I was man, I was living pretty far up the hill. So Mexico City is like a bowl. And in the middle is down, downtown slash presidential palace, statues, town square type deal. And up, the further you go up the hill, the more sort of 
like working class it gets, you might say. And that's, of course, where all the pollution is as well. So people who live up there, you know, it's a little bit of a rough area. There's not a lot of mass transportation. You have to take those painted school buses and sometimes those don't come. And I was like, you know, I'm dressed really nice. I'm not going to take one of these crazy bright painted school buses. I'm going to take a taxi. And I got into a taxi and it turned out to be either a real taxi that was in the business of kidnapping people or a fake taxi (laughs) that was in the business of kidnapping people. And I got in and the locks went below the door and I was thinking, what the hell's going on? I know I'm trying to go to the center of town. We're going up. We're not going down towards the center of the bull. So I told the guy to let me out. And he said, no, we're almost there. And I said, I know that's not true. And then I was thinking, I was rationalizing in my head, you know, this isn't really happening or is this happening? What do I do right now? I can't get out. The doors are locked from the inside. I can't do anything. And so uh, I ended up in a really dark area. He stops the car. He tries, I said, don't get out of the car. I slid behind him. I put my arm between him and the door and he didn't know my arm was there. And so he made a fast one for the door and I caught him. I was in really good shape. I was 20 years old and I was strong as an ox. I caught him and I threw him back in his seat and he wouldn't stop, you know, trying to get out of the car, even though we were not in the city. I mean, we were in the hood and he was going for this house, probably where a bunch of his friends lived or some sons or something like that. So we had a physical altercation in the car. I had to crawl between the two front seats of the car, push him out of the car after we were done with the struggle. I couldn't drive a stick and it was a 1968 Volkswagen Beetle. So I wasn't getting anywhere with the clutch and the, you know, this is just like a tricky old beast. So I took the keys out um, and threw them because I didn't want him to chase me at the car. And I ran back towards where we came. And I don't know how far I ran, but I never really ran that fast that far. And that was somebody finally pulled over because I was the white dude in the hood wearing like banana Republic chinos and a blue shirt. I remember what I was wearing. Wow. Wow. And I was sweat through this blue shirt. And I was kind of like, I wasn't dirty or anything, but I was like, you know, I looked pretty rough. You know, I'd been, punched in the face a couple of times uh, over a car seat, but mostly I was just sweating and I was in the hood at, you know, 8 PM or something. Oh <laughs> so I was like, okay, you know, this, and I, I just, I just bounced after that. You know, I told the guys who picked me up, there was a, a guy and a, a gal picked me up. Finally, nobody wanted to stop. And I said, take me to the police. And they were like, what happened? And I told them what happened. They go, we're not taking you to the police because <laughs> if this guy, if the kidnappers are working with the police, you're going to end up in, this is worse than you might think. And I, he's like, my advice, get out of here. Just go home. Wow. That's what I did. Wow. Yeah. Dang, that's scary. Um, well, you know, and then what happened the second time? How did it happen second, again? Yeah. So the second time is a really long story. So okay. I'll keep it super short. But I basically, I used to work as a teacher in Serbia, the former Yugoslavia. And I got picked up by their internal security services because they were convinced I was a spy taken to like what you might call a safe house. But it was uh, the name is so ironic because it's like the unsafest place that you would find yourself and ended up after a long period of time. I mean, not days or weeks, but after a longer period of time escaping with a friend who had also been with me at that point in time and was pretty badly beat up. So we escaped from that had to go through the whole diplomatic go to the embassy type situation. And then, uh, yeah, had to, had to get a note from the interior ministry saying that I was safe to stay in Serbia because, and that it was just some kind of mistake. Oh my gosh. Woo. Yeah. That's a uh, lightning striking twice, huh? <laughs> yeah. It was a little bit like, 
geez, you know, come on. <laughs> come on. That was, that was, you know, that was years later. That was half a decade later. But you're like, oh, I got this. I know how to handle this. <laughs> um, so, all right. So you, these skills, everything you've learned, now you're starting a, a new podcast. Tell me about that podcast and, and the stories that you're getting on that podcast. Sure. So the new show, the Jordan Harbinger show is the same that I've learned about interviewing for the last 11 years, except now my format is more open than I was before when I was doing the other show, which is mainly focused around relationships and things like that. One recent episode that I did was about how business leaders especially can manage themselves in a crisis. And it was uh, about crisis leadership as far as a, from a PR standpoint, which was pretty good. But one thing that's really been stuck in my brain for a while here since I did the interview is with Bill Browder. And if you're familiar with Bill Browder, or if you're not familiar with Bill Browder, he was one of the first investors in Russia and Eastern Europe. And he just saw opportunity where there was none. And he bought tons of companies for pennies on the dollar. And that was kind of how they were doing their privatization thing in Poland and Slovakia and the former Soviet Union. And what happens is he starts to get on the radar of these oligarchs and these corrupt Russian officials. And he's running a billion dollar plus hedge fund. Right. Mm -hmm. So he's like, look, these some shady gangster is not going to stop capitalism. Screw this. So he goes (laughs) to town on exposing these guys in Russia, in the media, shows how Russian oligarchs rip off and defraud foreign and domestic shareholders, uncovers a ton of corruption, and uncovers like a something like a $230 million tax fraud inside the Russian government, which gets him on Putin's radar. And Putin keeps trying to find him and extradite him to Russia. They killed his lawyer in prison huh? oh my through God. torture. I mean, it's just insane. So this guy, Bill Browder, was kind enough to come on the show and tell us this story. And so it's it's so fascinating because this is a banker who essentially turns into a political figure through a story that sounds like it's from a spy novel. Yeah, I mean, I definitely want to listen to that one. I mean, so the what you're getting at is that you're, you're getting people to tell those stories that they just won't tell otherwise, right? Right. I mean, he originally wanted to come on and talk about the Magnitsky Act and the sanctions against Russia and things like that. And I thought, you know what, let's get this story out out here and let's get some let's hear about what's happening from this guy, you know, and and taking down oligarchs and exposing some of these Russian corruption and just what they're what they're doing, how they're coming after him. So that was really fascinating for us. And, you know, these these stories that I try to get out of these really interesting leaders, uh, celebrities, occasionally entrepreneurs is I always want to go to the heart of things so that I can have something that they teach the audience. It's not just, wow, that was fascinating. It's all right. How can I spot opportunities like this guy, Bill Browder? How can I help my reputation using the, the crisis management thing? If I, if I have these damaged reputations, what causes conflict inside businesses? Uh, the crisis manager told us there's always something. There's always something that you see that these crisis managers find years or months beforehand, or often they'll find after a crisis that all the evidence was there, but the leadership didn't see it. So any show that you hear of the Jordan Harbinger show, any episode is always going to have takeaways that you go, okay, this is something that I want to learn. This is something that I can use now having heard the show. And that's the goal for the podcast. 
And that's really cool, especially at the, this high level. It's not theoretical. It's people going through these serious, serious situations. I, uh, your first episode, too, How Celebrities Stay Out of Jail. Uh, that's definitely an interesting topic, right? Yeah. Uh, and these are really cool topics, and it's cool stuff to learn. I'd love to not only be entertained, but to learn something. I try and do that with this podcast, um, too. So now you are speaking of learning and teaching, you're growing now, you're starting all over, uh, and, um, uh, which I'm sure is both exciting and scary. Uh, what is your key skills? What is the most important marketing skills that you've learned that you're going to be utilizing right now to grow the Jordan Harbinger podcast? Yeah. So what was really interesting is for the last 11 years, I've had this huge platform with which I could use to help other folks launch books. I helped people um, make their own podcasts and I helped people create something and deliver it to millions of people every single month. And I never thought of that as particularly being helpful, or I guess I could say I thought of it as being helpful, but I never thought about the reasoning why I just enjoyed it. I liked doing the platform, creating the content. Um, and I helped a ton of people get introduced to the guests on the show, things like that. And what I never thought about was ever having to ask for something in return. So now that I find myself starting over from scratch, what's very interesting for me is that of course I have my skills, my interviewing skills and things like that, but I have more importantly, hundreds and hundreds of relationships with people that I have created over the past decade and change with most of which I've never actually asked for anything in return. And so now that I'm starting over every single day, I reach out to 10, 20 people and I say, Hey, look, this is the situation where I'm at. I'm starting over from scratch with the Jordan Harbinger show. I could use all the help I could get. And I don't think there's ever been quite a, I've never felt so supported in my life. I mean, I'm talking people who I've spoken to, who I've been friends, close friends with for years, of course, are helping. But people that I've spoken to once a few years ago are like, absolutely, I'll help with this. And I just think, wow, this is so useful and so interesting. And I know a lot of people don't invest a lot of time or energy in creating and maintaining relationships because they think that they can't or because they think that they're too busy or it's a last priority. But I'll tell you right now, this is kind of like inflating the lifeboat throughout your career, creating and maintaining these relationships, you don't have much if you're starting from scratch other than your skills and your relationships. So yes, build your skills, but man, if you're not building your relationships, you will find out the hard way and it will be impossible to recover. It's such an appropriate topic. I come off, I'm coming off of like a six day event where, you know, it was a marketing event. One of my friends was putting on and it was a big event. And that was pretty much the theme of this is like, really, if you look back on every big thing, it, it, it really, I mean, there's these viral situations where people, you know, explode for this reason or that, but really it comes back, back down to those relationships, not so much tactics, right? So, of course. So, I mean, what, how do you suggest to people to maintain those relationships? I mean, I know that was a big part of your uh, previous podcast, but what's the best ways to, uh, get new relationships and maintain high level relationships. Getting new relationships is I think where a lot of people stumble and, and it's actually easier than you think. A lot of times the way that I get new relationships is I look in my existing network and I think, okay, who can I help inside this network? Or who can I introduce inside this network to someone else? So a lot of people find this tough because they'll go, man, how do I meet Ian garlic? The dude's really busy. There's a lot going on. 
and I don't want to ask him for this because I don't really know him. So they just kind of avoid any kind of outreach whatsoever. But if I know that you're looking for authors or C-suite executives to have on your show, then I might look inside my own network and go, hey, look, I know a bunch of these people. Why don't I introduce you? And I can reach out to you and say, hey, Ian, you don't really know me that well, but I know you interviewed this type of person. Is there anybody on this list of people or are, are any of the following five people somebody you might be interested in getting to know? And I can just shoot that in an email to you. And you might say, yeah, hey, I don't know you or I've heard your name somewhere or, yeah, I have no idea who you are, whatever. But, yeah, I'd love an introduction to so-and-so and so-and-so for my show. I can do that. And then I don't immediately turn around and go, OK, by the way, can you do this thing for me? I will just help people for a while. And I might even say, hey, if there's anything else I can do for you, let me know. I know we don't know each other, but, you know, we run in the same circles. So I thought it might be cool to get to know each other at some point. In the meantime, happy to help. That's a really no slash low commitment way to reach out to somebody. And even if they say, no, I'm not really interested in any of those people, they might remember that you at least tried, which is more than most people do. What most people do is they ask, they reach out and ask for something or they don't actually reach out at all. And so helping other people without the expectation of anything in return is always a really good idea. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I highly recommend is not keeping score. And this is where a lot of people go wrong as well. They, tr they do this thing where they're like, okay, I reached out to four people for Ian. And then you're like, Hey, I don't suppose, you know, this other person. I'm like, actually I do. So I make that intro. And then you're like, wow, this is really helpful. I hate to ask, but do you know this other person? And I say, yeah. And I make that intro. And then uh, later on, you're saying, oh, you know, I hate to bug you again, but there's this other person. Can you introduce me to them? And then if I'm keeping score, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, this guy is such a taker. This is really annoying. If I'm not keeping score, I'm happy to help. It doesn't matter. But the problems arise not just when I'm keeping score in that particular re respect, but if I'm keeping score and I say, hey, Ian, can you send out my new, let's see, what's a thing that would definitely be awful for your business. Uh, can you send out my new, um, asphalt scented air freshener to your email <laughs> list? I really need to sell a lot of these. And you might go, actually, that's not a good fit for my list. Now, if I'm not keeping score, I go, Oh, that's cool. He's looking out for his business. No problem. Hey, do you know who else might be able to help me with this particular, uh, scented air freshener? I'm having trouble selling it. And I don't know why. <laughs> And then, and then, uh, you know, but if I am keeping score, then what I'm thinking in my head is screw this, this, the balls on this guy. Yeah. I can't believe it. I introduced him to eight people and I ask him to sell my air freshener and he says, no, who does he think he is? He's not helpful at all. This is a bad person. I can't believe I got duped by this guy. You know, I resent you now. And then next time we see each other, you're like, Hey, Jordan, I owe you a beer, man. You have been so good to me. And I'm, and I just want to shove my fist in your face because <laughs> I'm thinking that you screwed me over and we had this awesome quid pro quo that I was going to cash in and you said no, you didn't follow through on your end of the bargain. I'm mad at you and you have no idea why, yep. right? Because I was keeping score. So it's, it's interesting because if whoever keeps score is the one that loses, it's not like they're keeping score and then you lose because I'm mad at you. It's, it's like drinking a poison and hoping the other person gets sick and dies, right? I'm the one poisoning the well by keeping score. So since I can't read minds and most people can't, other people can't either, as far as I know, then don't keep score because you'll never know someone's intentions. And also don't keep score because I might introduce you to eight people. You might introduce me to two 
do you still owe me six intros? Who's tracking this? This is ridiculous. Maybe you introduced me to two amazing people and I introduced you to eight people that you didn't ever have anything with. Now who's ahead of the game? Why are we doing this? We shouldn't be doing this at all. (laughs) There's no value to tracking this. I've got to track every relationship I have with everybody. It doesn't make any sense. So of course, look, if someone's taking advantage of you, that's one thing. But you'll know when that's happening because I'll say, hey, Ian, I heard you're having an event. I'd love to join. And you go, yeah, no. And you have no reason. You're just like, Jordan's not cool. Forget this guy. And I'm like, what the hell? All the people I introduce you to are going to be there. And you're like, yeah, but we don't like you anymore. You know, okay, that's fine. That's, you're taking advantage of me then, right? I, don't, I get that. But if I'm keeping score, I will always lose because I will always think that what I did for you is more valuable than what you did for me, most likely. Or... Or I really do think that you did something more valuable, and then what? I'm trying to pay you back, and I come across as, like, needy, or, I, or I'm avoiding you because I don't know how to pay you back, so now we're not interacting. There's no benefit that comes from this. So do not keep score and always give without the expectation of anything in return. That's where the sweet spot is. That's great. Uh, that's, uh, I tell that pe- to people all the time. And they're like, well, I did this for so-and-so. I'm like, you just don't expect anything ever if you're going to actually give. If you do expect something, formalize it and say, I'm going to do this. You're going to do that for me. Otherwise, don't worry about it. Just do it. Uh, That's awesome advice. Uh, We got a few minutes, like a couple minutes left. I just have one last question for you. So that's awesome marketing advice. What's what do you think is the most overrated piece of marketing advice right now, especially like growing a podcast? Oh, so uh, marketing advice. So I think the problem or marketing sk- or marketing skill, marketing advice, or, you know, that sure. people are- I mean, when it comes to growing a podcast, there's this conventional wisdom. That's like, you need to get into a certain category or you need to be in all these blog posts. And maybe that works for the very beginning, but I think the ROI is really low. And when I was restarting the Jordan Harbinger show uh, recently here, people are saying you need to be everywhere. And I'm thinking, yes. Okay. So I booked Uh, a lot of show appearances that I'm going to do for the first half of the year and for the rest of 2018. And this is one of the first ones that I've done because you were so awesome and let me sort of like come in and almost uh, a sort of emergency show appearance here because (laughs) I'm really in a, in a like rush to launch this in the right way. Um, But what I will tell you is that when people say you should be everywhere, it's really easy to go on YouTube and Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and every podcast that you can. But the problem is you're starting to saturate it. And so unless you're doing a Gary Vaynerchuk where you're going to consistently be everywhere and you have good enough content that people actually care, it's compelling enough for people to stick, you're in trouble, especially if you're trying to get people to consume a medium that you're not in right now. So if I'm, I know from being on a podcast that people here are going to listen to the Jordan Harbinger show in some percentage because they all listen to podcasts, namely this one. If I'm on Twitter doing a or Reddit doing an AMA or whatever, AMA, what percentage of those people are going to listen to podcasts? Okay, 10% maybe, maybe yeah. 25. And then what percentage of those people are then going to go and subscribe? I'm already cutting my numbers way down. So I would rather go on a show, podcast show that has 2,000 listeners than an AMA that has 5,000 viewers because the percentage of people who work with or listen to podcasts is going to be much higher in the podcast medium. And that same thing is true. If you're trying to build up a YouTube, you need to collab with other YouTubers, not just sit there and try to be on blogs and hope people click over and subscribe to your YouTube. Yes. There's some magic 
to being in multiple places and on multiple channels. But if you want to dominate one channel, especially something like podcasting, which is the most valuable channel as far as ad dollars and attention are concerned, then you need to be mostly here. But I'll tell you, this that advice is is sort of marketing in nature. But the the real the real advice that I think is is the truth is you have to have great content. And this sounds like a cliche, but most people cannot create really compelling content. You have to be more interesting than the other people in your medium. So if whenever I hear people say, I want to start a YouTube channel, I'm just thinking, what's the compelling angle that you have? Well, you know, I'm going to cook on camera. (laughs) Find everybody else who's doing that and then tell me how you're different from literally all of them. And if you don't have a bunch of reasons, you're in trouble. Are you making unique things? Are you more entertaining? Are you more attractive? Uh, Do you bring an audience with you that is bigger than what the other cooking niches have? Is this concept proven out? Because I'll tell you right now, it would be really easy to get in front of millions of people. And if you lose 999,000 of them because your content is not compelling, there was no reason for you to get in front of that many people anyway. Mm -hmm. So you have to be amazing in a niche where you can dominate. If you're a writer, stick to writing. You don't have to be also a YouTuber and on Instagram. And now you're a photographer and a videographer. Oh, and you need a podcast because everyone says you do. So here's your really lame show that actually unsells your book. That's really good. Right. <laughs> that's so a, I, yeah, that's great advice. I see it happens so much. Yeah, man. I think a lot of people, um, I think a lot of people think they've got to be everywhere. And especially authors and things like that are like, oh, I got to go on YouTube and I got to go on this and that and the other thing. No, you don't. And especially if you don't have a book and everyone's telling you you should, but you have no idea what the hell you would write about, do not write a book. You don't need one. I know that it's, I know you're supposed to have a book to be an authority on everything, but you don't really have to do that. Having a bad book is really definitely, is definitely worse than not having a book at all. I promise. (laughs) That's great, great advice. I mean, it'll save you a lot of time and allow you to focus on what's important and go deep on what's important and what you're good at. Exactly. Uh, yes. That's awesome. So Jordan Harbinger show, jordanharbinger.com. Um, how often are you putting podcasts out? How often are you putting the show out? I put them out three times a week. Two of them are interviews or deep dives, which is like a kind of a toolkit for people to use certain skills like coping with insecurity or networking or negotiating a salary raise, which is some things we've done in the past on these deep dives. And then Friday, we answer email from the listener. And that is always, always, always advice. And man, you would not believe the stuff that hits my inbox. Holy moly. (laughs) What's what's the weirdest question you ever got? Oh, man. I mean, there are questions from people that are like, uh, I don't even know where to begin. There's so many strange ones. People going through crazy events that you never thought would happen or saying, how do I make friends? I have a lot of problems. And I'm like, well, I need more details. And they're like, I live in Antarctica, literally. And I'm like, okay, hang on. What? You know, or people saying, Hey, I'm in this really weird situation at work because I'm this really well-known person in my company. Cause they're a C level executive, except I've gone through this really horrible, shameful situation. And how am I going to manage this? I mean, there's all kinds of really intense questions in there that are sometimes life and death. They have to do with uh, addiction or they have to do with lifestyle, but they're always super interesting. And a lot of people write in about business and work as well, which is funny because if you think about it, yes, I had a real job as an attorney, but that was in a former life. And I'm kind of thinking, geez, you know, <laughs> if, if you're asking me what you should be doing to get promoted, uh, and, you know, at, 
Pfizer, you know, we just don't have enough resources out there. But I think it speaks to the level of trust uh, that we have with the audience, or at least I'd like to think so. Well, I'm excited to listen. I'm sure everyone else is. Uh, Jordan, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, and when you get back, will you come back on when you get uh, next six months, when you get up to 4 million episodes a, a month? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that this crazy tour that we're doing is going to help build us back up because we have brand recognition and, or at least, you know, people know who I am from other projects, but it's never really been done. I don't know anybody who's started over a show that they built for a decade from scratch. It's, I don't know if it's ever been done. Well, you're going to do it. I'm excited for you and thank you. thank you for being on and thank you all for listening to Jordan and I and taking us on your journey. This has been Ian garlic and the garlic marketing show. That's it for the Garlic Marketing Show. If you want to get the inside scoop and the latest techniques, make sure to follow Ian Garlic on Facebook. 